G'day, welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. My name is Tanya Chapman and this will be my last Age Abuse and Justice case. So first, I'm going to give you a short case, and then I'm going to wax lyrical about why I decided to do this and what I was hoping to achieve, and after that, I'll try not to be long-winded as I give thanks to the people who supported me. Before I get into the case, a quick word of why this is my last case. I am a solicitor with the Legal Aid Elder Abuse Service on the Central Coast, and the Age Abuse and Justice series was developed and made as part of that service. At the start of 2021, I will sadly be leaving the service to start an exciting role with Catherine Henry Lawyers in Newcastle, staying in the field of law I love, which is elder law. I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to work with the Elder Abuse Service and contribute to the important work the service does. I'm sad that I will no longer be making age abuse and justice case summaries, but hopefully not too long down the track, I'll be writing my case summaries again and back in the podcast booth, slash under the stairs in my house. As promised, I'll start with the case. This case is one I had scripted to do as a video case summary. In case you weren't aware, Age Abuse and Justice started as a video series on YouTube before I transitioned to podcast version to allow me to do longer cases. I even filmed this case three times. The first time I was just learning how to use the recording equipment and the audio was so bad I couldn't salvage it. The second time it was only when I went to edit the footage that I realised that a combination of the lighting I had used and my foundation had made me look orange, so I wasn't going to publish that. The third version was acceptable and I edited it the way I wanted it, but every time I exported it to a format I could publish in, the audio went out of sync. After numerous attempts to fix it, I gave up on it. Now it has come in handy as I wanted a shorter script to finish up on, and this case, kind of but not really, lets me finish up on a more positive note. It demonstrates that sometimes what looks like elder abuse isn't, Sometimes people try their best, and sometimes respecting an older person's wishes means that you can't help them as you would like. So, on to the case. The case. If you are responsible for the care of a person and they die because you have failed to provide that care, you may be charged with manslaughter by gross criminal negligence. This was the charge that was brought against David and Philip Thompson when their mother died in September 2017. In 2017, Shirley Thompson was 72 years old. She had two sons, David who was 39 years old and Philip who was 42 years old. Shirley's husband died in 2012. After that, she lived with her two sons in a modest three-bedroom apartment in Western Sydney. In August 2017, an ambulance was called to the home. David informed the paramedics that Shirley had been bedridden for 10 days and had been eating and drinking less and less. At Blacktown Hospital, Shirley was found to have numerous bed sores in advanced stages that had not been dressed or kept sterile. Her bloodstream had become infected and Shirley died of sepsis 10 days after she was admitted to hospital. Criminal charges were brought against David and Philip. The Crown's argument was that from the time of their father's death, 
David and Philip assumed responsibility for their mother, and they therefore had a duty to exercise reasonable care for her health and nourishment. They were accused of having breached their duty by failing to provide proper medical treatment, food and hydration for their mother. David and Philip admitted that they had a duty of care to Shirley, but they denied any negligence. David was more involved with Shirley's care as he was unemployed and at home all day. He noticed a bed sore on her buttock and he washed it every two or three days in the shower. She only developed smaller bed sores in the two days before she was taken to hospital. Philip was less involved because he was employed full-time and worked shifts. He only knew about the bed sore on her buttock a few days before she was hospitalised. Both David and Philip were aware of Shirley's decreased appetite and reduced mobility. Shirley was adamantly opposed to receiving medical attention, either in her own home or at a nursing home or hospital. Her sons knew how she felt and deferred to her wishes for many years. It was only when she appeared seriously unwell and incoherent that they called an ambulance. They argued that they gave her the best reasonable care they could, as two men without medical training, who were attempting to look after an infirm patient in her own home while she stubbornly refused medical treatment. Peter Monaghan was a witness at the trial. Peter had known Shirley and her husband since 1985, when they met through the church. Peter explained that when Shirley's husband Gordon was alive, he had done everything, the washing, ironing, shopping, cleaning and cooking meals. When Gordon died, Shirley became reclusive and soon cut ties with all of her old friends. Peter also said that Shirley's physical health began to decline at the same time. He said that Shirley also stubbornly refused to improve or maintain her home and wouldn't let her sons do any maintenance. She also abandoned any attempts to keep the house clean. Peter even offered to get a team of cleaners to do a thorough clean, but Shirley wouldn't let him. Peter continued to visit Shirley up until February 2017, just a few months before her death, and he spoke to her many times about getting more help. He spoke to her alone a couple of times, but she was determined not to get help and not to go into a nursing home. Peter tried to get her to see a doctor and was almost successful. She agreed to have a home visit with the doctor she had seen about 20 years earlier. Surprisingly enough, that doctor was still working, but he no longer did home visits and she refused to go to his surgery or to see anyone else. After February 2017, Shirley refused to let Peter in the house for another visit, saying she needed to clean the house first. Before Gordon's death, Shirley had suffered a knee injury. She refused to see a doctor even though her husband urged her to do so. The injury caused her to drag one leg and contributed to her loss of mobility. That's pretty significant. She was so opposed to seeing a doctor that she would rather drag her leg around, which must have been painful. Shirley developed severe arthritis in both hips and by 2015 was using a walking stick to move about and was taking paracetamol and ibuprofen to manage her pain. On the day Shirley died, police interviewed David for an hour and 15 minutes. Philip was interviewed for just under two hours. David explained that from the start of 2017 until about August, Shirley was able to get herself out of bed and make her way to the living room. David would help her to the toilet and shower every second day. Although she would sometimes call her sons by the wrong name, David had no reason to suspect that there was anything wrong with Shirley's mental capacity. David explained that after he saw the bed sore, he wanted to call a doctor or an ambulance, but his mother wouldn't agree to it. David explained that Shirley's appetite had decreased since the start of the year, and in the last month she wouldn't eat any breakfast and only pick at lunch and dinner he made for her. He didn't notice any significant weight loss until two days before her death, when he noticed that her arms were thin. 
The medical report suggests that the loss of weight would not have been obvious as she weighed 85 kilos at her death. Medically, there was no indication of long-term deficiency of nutrition. On the 21st of August, David noticed sores on the back of Shirley's leg when he was changing the bed sheets. He washed the sores and again on the 22nd when he changed the bed again. On 23rd, he noticed that Shirley wasn't speaking. She looked dehydrated but refused water. When Philip got home from work, David spoke with him and they called the ambulance. Shirley was adamant that she didn't want to go into aged care. She told her son she didn't want to die in a nursing home, she wanted to stay at home with them. Philip was asked why they hadn't given Shirley the opportunity to go to aged care six months prior when her mobility declined. Philip said he had concerns about the care she would receive in a nursing home, worried that she would be neglected. He described it as, quote, just like a piece of meat left in a nursing home, no one cares about them, end quote. The Crown alleged that the sons breached their duty of care in four ways. 1. Failure to provide proper treatment of pressure sores. 2. Failure to provide a hygienic environment to prevent infection. 3. Failure to procure medical treatment for the bed sores. And 4. Failure to ensure Shirley had adequate nutrition and hydration. Okay, so arguments against those points. 1. There was no evidence to show that the sons understood how serious the bed sores were. 2. The evidence of the paramedics was that Shirley was found on a stained mattress with filthy bed linen and towels under her. The court said that this was not evidence of long-term unhygienic environment, but instead that David was struggling to maintain sanitary conditions in the last few days when his mother was incontinent and difficult to get out of bed. 3. The failure to procure medical treatment? Well, Shirley adamantly refused to receive medical treatment. She was conscious and capable of making decisions in the lead-up to her hospitalisation. Her sons urged her several times to allow them to get her help and she refused. 4. There was no evidence that the sons failed to provide food and water. It was Shirley who sadly was unwilling and then unable to take food or drink. The court found that the sons cooperated fully with police at every stage of the investigation. Did David fail to seek advice? The advice would have been to take his mother to a doctor or an aged care facility, both of which she was already refusing. Quote, The evidence brought before the court in this prosecution has illustrated the great burden that may be imposed on caring relatives by an elderly person who insists upon dying at home. Mrs. Thompson's choice placed upon her sons a responsibility for geriatric nursing that demanded unfairly of them at the end. End quote. David and Philip Thompson were found not guilty of manslaughter by gross criminal negligence. I think in this case, the evidence of Peter Monaghan, who had known Shirley for about 37 years, was invaluable. He was an independent witness who could attest to Shirley's adamant opposition to receiving medical treatment, even in her home and especially in an aged care facility. It makes me wonder, without Peter's evidence, how things might have gone for the sons. This case really does demonstrate the heavy burden that is placed on carers. As you could see in this case, Shirley still had capacity to make decisions, and her decision was she didn't want medical treatment and she definitely didn't want to go into aged care. She wanted to die at home with her sons. And her sons respected her wishes, they provided all the care they could, 
as much as she would let them. That was the case of the Queen versus Thompson. The case citation is provided in the notes. As always, if you have identified or if you are at risk of elder abuse, you can call the helpline on 1800 353 374 or if you are on the New South Wales Central Coast, you can contact the Elder Abuse Service on 02 4324 5611. Part 2. Why I did this. As I said in my intro, I summarise elder abuse cases to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. I want to explain that a little more. What elder abuse looks like. Elder abuse as a term is gaining more traction within society. People beyond medical and legal professionals are starting to use the term. But just because it's in common usage doesn't mean it is understood. Some people use elder abuse to describe situations that don't fit within the definition, such as age discrimination or financial scams. A reminder, the World Health Organization defines elder abuse as a single or repeated act or lack of appropriate action occurring within any relationship where there is an expectation of trust, which causes harm or distress to an older person. So an employer who refuses to employ a person because of their age, that may be age discrimination, but it is not elder abuse because the older person was not in a relationship of trust with the employer. A person going door-to-door offering roofing services, receiving payment and never doing the work may be intentionally targeting older people for a financial scam, but it's not elder abuse because the older person is not in a relationship of trust with that scam artist. The reason the definition is important to me personally is that it is that relationship of trust which makes the older person particularly vulnerable and less likely to protect themselves. It's that element of betrayal that gets to me and makes me want to protect the older person. If it is a child, a grandchild, a carer that the older person relies on and loves, they are more likely to be generous with their money, more likely to act to their own detriment, and less likely to think about protecting themselves. I hope that with some of the cases I've covered, I have demonstrated what this might look like, but to give a few examples. Granny flats, where the older person transfers their home to a family member for no money only the promise that they can live in the house for the rest of their life. Informal loans, where the older person loans money to a child but doesn't get anything in writing, because they would never believe that their child wouldn't pay it back. Later, when the child says that it was a gift, the parent has to prove that it was a loan. Wills, where the carer pressures the older person to change their will to benefit the carer. This kind of pressure can be hard to resist if you're worried that your carer will leave you and you need them for everything. Grooming, Identifying an isolated older person and befriending them with the intention of getting a financial benefit. And more. Some of the types of elder abuse I wasn't able to cover include theft, taking money from bank accounts, verbal threats and harassment. As much as I would have liked to include some of these cases, they rarely make it to court. Possibly because the police are unable to get involved, the older person might not want to get their child in trouble, or any of the other many reasons why elder abuse goes unreported. You can see that if there wasn't that relationship of trust, the older person might not have acted as they did, or might have taken additional steps to protect themselves. 
how the law deals with it. I have tried to demonstrate how the law handles cases of elder abuse because it's not as simple as some people believe. So, mum gave son $100,000, he won't pay it back and she needs it for aged care. Some might say, well, the court will order him to pay her back because that's the fair thing to do. Not so. The mum would need to make a legal case and would need to prove that the money wasn't gifted. She would need to bring the matter under existing legal principles, regulations and laws. It's not enough to say it was unfair. Because people don't understand how difficult it can be to bring a case and to get the evidence required, because they don't understand how long court proceedings can take and how costly they can be, they don't understand how extra important it is to protect yourself from the start. It might just be thinking, well I trust my son and I don't want to hurt his feelings by asking him to sign a loan document. I'm sure he'll pay the money back and if he doesn't, I'll get a lawyer who will get the money back for me. If the person knew it wasn't as easy as that, if they knew how time-consuming and costly court proceedings could be, they might think twice about getting a loan agreement or loaning the money in the first place. Sometimes it's a case of saying, if the person is offended and refuses to sign a loan document, Maybe that's an indication they never intended to pay it back. I believe that with greater community awareness of what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it, older persons might be more wary of transactions that put themselves at risk and more likely to insist on protecting themselves by getting legal advice up front, by getting transactions in writing, and maybe in not doing the transaction at all. So that's what I was hoping to do with the Age Abuse and Justice series, both the videos available on YouTube and the podcast channel. I can't say how well I have done that, but I feel like in doing the podcast I have contributed to the greater cause of raising awareness of elder abuse and advocating for older persons standing up for themselves. And I want to thank all of my listeners for letting me be a part of that cause. Now all my love and gratitude. I want to thank my team, the Legal Aid Elder Abuse Service. I did this series while working as a solicitor with this service. My manager Mary Lovelock gave me the go-ahead to try my crazy idea to summarise cases and just chat about them. My team supported me, reviewing my scripts when I needed them to, giving me feedback and just listening to me complain about how hard it is to record something. A massive, massive, massive thank you goes to Jessica Sullivan, marketing genius and tech guru superb. Jessica worked for several months in the elder abuse service as our marketing consultant. When I mentioned my idea to her to record myself summarizing elder abuse cases, she jumped on the idea. And before I knew it, she had put together an intro video for me. Why am I swinging on a pole and doing yoga in my intro video? Well, she told me to film myself researching cases and to make it look interesting. It is not easy to make legal research look interesting. I did my best. Without Jess, age abuse and justice wouldn't have been possible. She told me what programs to use and taught me how to use them. She gave me valuable feedback on my scripts, letting me know when something would only make sense to a fellow lawyer and when I needed just just to use plain English. She even helped me come up with the name of the series. I cannot thank Sally enough for all she did. A massive thank you to my parents, who I made watch and listen to my first several recordings to get the truly honest feedback only a parent can provide, who continue to listen to all my recordings and give me feedback, and who sneak about the house trying to be as quiet as possible when I'm recording. Finally, thank you to everyone who has listened, who have provided feedback and support, 
or have shared or recommended this series to other people. Thank you for bearing with me as I got used to the technology and gradually learned how to record. And thank you for just listening in. Hopefully you can take something away from this series. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to the series as much as I have enjoyed making it. Thank you. The Crown alleged that the sun's... No, 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 don't climb up, don't climb up. Aggie, what's this? What have you done? Don't climb. No, 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 no. I no, no. No, don't climb. No. Up. You're gonna... Okay, okay. You're going to have a hug. Is that what you want? You go, yes, I'm determined to get a hug. Hey? Off, Mum. Off. Good girl.